This is part one of chapter three. A Madame Builds a Dream House. It was midsummer of 1933 when I returned to Bowling Green with all sorts of grandiose plans generated by my crash course in Madame Ship at Miss May's School of Sexual Technology. But despite my eagerness to get the show on the road, late October found my career as a madame still stalled on one critical front. Soon after my visit to Clarksville, I had confided in a few influential friends, striving to sell them on my plan for a bordello. The immediate reaction of even the most worldly of these men was one of shocked disbelief. They tried to convince me that I had temporarily lost my senses, that I had no conception of the difficulties I'd have to face, and that a respectable woman just didn't get into that kind of business, especially in her hometown. Their logic may have been valid, but with my rough-and-ready experience in door-to-door selling, I was not a person who wilted easily in the face of sales resistance. After seeing that I was determined to go ahead with my project despite all opposition, my friends apparently decided to humor me in my headstrong rush towards disaster. They began to view my unconventional ambitions with amused tolerance. In the end, most of them agreed to help clear my path with whatever influence they could quietly exert in the community. Partly as an instinctive bit of female strategy and partly in a spirit of reckless cussedness, I included among the friends I recruited to my cause one of the bowling green gentlemen I had spotted in Miss May's house of pleasure. Like the others I had contacted, he indignantly lectured me on the impropriety of a woman in my position, a mother of two young sons, even considering such scandalous illegal ideas. You'll end up a social outcast, he warned. Perhaps so, but at least I'll be making a good living for my family, I snapped. I don't notice the folks in Bowling Green rushing to buy my hoisery and cosmetics. Maybe I just need to handle a sexier kind of merchandise. My friend promptly jumped on that kind of reasoning. How can you delude yourself about making money running a brothel? Even if, by some miracle, the police let you stay open, you don't know the first thing about that kind of business. I most certainly do, I quickly retorted. Baloney, where would you ever learn how to operate... Uh, a whorehouse at Miss May's house down in Clarksville I replied sweetly ever hear about Miss May my friend was thunderstruck he eyed me suspiciously as he groped for words at Miss May's house he finally sputtered not even bothering to claim he knew nothing about the notorious Tennessee madame are you telling me you worked for Miss May I couldn't help giggling don't be silly I'm hardly the type but I do know Miss May, and I spent a weekend with her recently. She was kind enough to give me all kinds of pointers about starting and running a house. It was plain to see during the ensuing pause in the conversation that my friend was doing some rapid recollecting and that a horrible possibility was beginning to take shape on the horizons of his mind. If I really had spent a recent weekend at Miss May's house, there was a chance I'd seen him. Perhaps he even recalled the frantic flight of some unknown female at the far end of the long hallway. In any event, his resistance to my plans began to crumble. Well, he muttered at last, it must have been an interesting weekend. It certainly was, I replied, and I casually recounted a few memories of the house of Miss May and her girls. By the time I finished, my friend had no doubts, I'm sure, about my having visited Miss May. His only doubt was, had I or hadn't I seen him on one of his tomcatting expeditions? From that point, he was on my side and later wielded a considerable influence on my behalf. But he never did discover the answer to the big question. 
After mustering my secret little band of supporters, the next problem was locating, furnishing a suitable house at a price in line with my anemic budget. By September, I'd found my house, a huge ancient barn of a place on Small House Road, which I leased for a year for $30 a month, a rather substantial rent in those days of depression. I guess the preacher who'd owned the place was in a hurry to move his family on to his new pastorate and delighted to find a tenant who agreed so quickly to his asking price because he never once questioned my story of planning to open a rooming house. In fact, even after the true purpose of the house was known, and irate citizens began writing indignant letters to the good padre at his home in another state, I never received a single protest from my ordained landlord. He may have stood four square against sin, but as long as he got his rent checks promptly, he seemed to be willing to bend his conscience a bit. Or perhaps I'm too harsh in my judgment. Maybe he simply was too busy battling sin in his new town and be bothered by the devil's doings back in Bowling Green. Furnishing the big house was my next task, and that empty monster with four bedrooms upstairs and one downstairs looked like a bottomless pit. Surprisingly, though, furnishing the house wasn't as tough or as costly a problem as I had feared. I still had a considerable furniture, linens, and other essential housewares from my years of marriage. This stockpile went into the house along with what furnishings and bric-a-brac my mother could spare. To complete the task, I found several bargains in used furniture stores, scrounged a few pieces from relatives, and even resorted to buying some items on the Dollar Down, Dollar When You Catch Me installment plan. Also, one of my friends made discreet arrangements to have a large jukebox and three soda pop vending machines moved in on a rental percentage deal. By mid-October, my house was furnished. Surveying the results, I knew it could not hold a candle to Miss May's elegant establishment, but it was comfortable with a second-hand sort of charm. At least, I told myself, the house from top to bottom was still decked out in as good a taste as I could afford. Now, except for three still unsolved problems, I was ready to make my debut as a madame. First, I tackled two unpleasant personal dilemmas. The moment I'd been dreading came when I brought my mother to see the house on Small House Road for the first time. I told her the same story I'd handed to Preacher, that I was going to open a rooming house. It took my mother about two minutes to discover just what kind of rooming house I had in mind. She walked through the small parlor and large adjoining living room, her eyes arching at the sight of two vending machines looming suggestively amid a profusion of chairs and sofas of all sizes, shapes, and vintage. Must be expecting an awful lot of thirsty guests, she observed pointedly. From the living room, she proceeded on to the dining room, a room I'd converted into a dancing area. There wasn't a stick of furniture in the room, just the big garish jukebox and another soda pop dispenser squatting along one inside wall. Mother stopped and surveyed the room and his accessories. I see, I see, she murmured. She turned slowly, staring at me sadly. I do hope and pray you know what you're doing, Pauline, she said. Without another word, she marched out of the house. Years later, she confessed to me that she hadn't been surprised that day on Small House Road. She recalled that shortly before his death, my father had warned her that, in hard times, I'd become a willful, determined woman who could be expected to do unconventional things if there seemed to be no other solution to life's problems. And he had asked her to never turn her back on me, no matter what I might do. She never did, nor did she ever utter a single word of reproach about the path I chose to follow. It simply was a subject that we never discussed. The other personal problem was what to do with my two sons. No matter how high class it may be, a brothel just isn't designed for the care and rearing of children. In my case, I couldn't ask my mother for help with two rough-and-tumble boys because she was in frail health. So, once more, I turned to my former, hu- mother's, my former husband's mother. 
I visited her and frankly told her what I was going to do and why I was doing it. Like others in whom I confided, she was shocked and certain that I was making a terrible mistake, but at the same time, she understood my grave financial problems and sympathized with my desperate searching for a way to make a better living for myself and my family. Without hesitation, she agreed to take on the job of helping raise her grandsons. From that time on, she kept the boys and I paid the bills. My third pre-opening problem was not so painful, but it was considerably more difficult. The operation of a house requires one basic commodity, girls, and despite the rudimentary knowledge I had acquired during my visit to Clarksville, I discovered to my dismay that I hadn't the foggiest notion of how to go about recruiting high-quality prostitutes. You don't fill that kind of position by advertising in the help wanted columns. You don't walk up to some strange female and say, Pardon me, dear, but could I interest you in a good-paying job screwing in my new cat house? Miss May had told me to pass the word around about my plans to open a house, and she had assured me that before long I'd have plenty of applicants. Well, I had passed the word along, but my friends, although willing and able to assist in other critical areas, scarcely qualified as recruiters of female flesh. Most of the time, I knew or suspected patronized prostitutes, most of them, I knew or suspected patronized prostitutes from time to time, but they looked upon these ladies of pleasure as something that was always available, giving no thought to where they came from or how they were hired. One of my friends, a bachelor with a naughty reputation as a tireless, devoted skirt chaser, provided me with the names of several of his easier conquests. Girls whose reputation as loose women were widely known and talked about in Bowling Green and several adjoining counties. Good Lord, I said, those dames have bedded down with half the male population. I'm not looking for amateur whores, looking for a couple of young, attractive professionals who will be fresh and new in Bowling Green. My friend shook his head. Except for the local talent, I'm afraid I can't be of much help. Then, recalling my stories of the weekend at Clarksville, he suggested, Why don't you call Miss May? Maybe she can help you. I hated the thought of imposing upon Miss May again, but I could think of no alternatives. For a second time, I found myself telephoning the Tennessee Madame for a helping hand. Miss May, I admitted after indulging in the customary formality of telephone etiquette, I've got a terrible problem. I've rent, rented and furnished a big five-bedroom house. I've talked with the right people, and I'm ready to open. But the trouble is, I haven't been able to find any girls. I just don't know what to do. Miss May was sympathetic. I don't have a single contact in Bowling Green, she said, but I'll talk with the girls. Perhaps they'll have some ideas. The following day, I received a phone call from Miss May. One of her girls had a friend who was recently moved to Bowling Green after being busted by the police while working as a call girl in Louisville. The, next, the judge let her go when she promised to get out of town, Miss May explained, so she moved to Bowling Green and took a job waiting tables at a restaurant until the heat's up, off up in Louisville. Miss May said the girl's name was Joyce. She advised me to contact her at the restaurant where she worked and quietly sound her out about coming to work in my house. My Clarksville friend, after providing me with this lead, suggested she might have an additional solution for my woman power problems. Even if Joyce goes to work for you, it'll take more than one girl to support your big house, Miss May said. Eventually, if your place is successful, the word will get around and you'll be able to get all the girls you want. But right now, it seems to me you'd be smart to run a house of assignation. A house of what? I asked, fumbling through my vocabulary for a clue to what Miss May was talking about. 
Miss May's explanation was explicit. A house of assignation is a place that rents out rooms by the hour to itchy couples who want and need some privacy for their loving. With only one girl to handle the stags, you can rent out your other four bedrooms to the hot pillow trade. Once word gets around, you ought to be able to rent each bedroom three or four times a night. Excitedly by the money-making potential of Miss May's suggestion, I hurriedly sought out my bachelor friend. I was certain he, as one of the town's busiest studs, could offer expert advice on the feasibility of opening a house of assignation in Bowling Green. To say that he was delighted with the plan would be an understatement. He was ecstatic. No doubt recalling uncomfortable acrobatic couplings in the back seats of cars, furtive tristings in hotel rooms, and nerve-wracking risky embraces in the bedrooms of absent husbands, he immediately endorsed the idea. Why didn't I think of it, he exclaimed. That's what this town's needed for a long time, a place where a guy and a gal can make out in style without worrying about being seen or being shot by the old man. Pauline, you've got a gold mine in those empty bedrooms. Heartened by my friend's enthusiasm, I could scarcely wait until mid-afternoon when I knew the restaurant trade would be light to look up Joyce, the refugee call girl from Louisville. Back in those days when it was a town of about 18,000 population, Bowling Green didn't have too many restaurants. But Joyce worked at a waitress in one of the town's better beaneries, an establishment that catered to downtown businessmen and their employees during the day and to the traveling salesman type of transient clientele in the evenings. Except for a cashier and four or five waitresses sitting at a rear table, sipping coffee and idly gossiping, the big dining room was empty when I hurried into the restaurant in my search for professional talent. When I settled down at the table in a remote corner of the room, one of the waitresses, a middle-aged, sway-backed veteran of many, many weary moons of hash-slinging, shuffled over and handed me a menu. I ordered a Coke and a sandwich I didn't really want, figuring that for the sake of appearances, I'd better be a paying customer. When my order arrived, I asked if Joyce was working. Yeah, she's here, the waitress replied, jerking her head in the direction of the table where her companions and labor were resting during the break in their daily chores. Please tell her I'd like to chat with her. Tell her a friend down in Clarksville asked me to drop in and say hello. Seconds later, a slender, dark-haired girl sat down at my table and eyed me suspiciously. Despite her unstylish, work-stained white uniform, it was immediately apparent that Joyce was an extremely attractive girl in her early 20s that with a shape that was being wasted in such drab surroundings. Mary said you wanted to talk with me, the girl stammered, her speech impeded pediment doubtlessly worsened by frantic wondering if something from her past had caught up with her. I smiled and asked her to have a cup of coffee or a coke. She declined with an impatient shake of her head, still staring at me with big questioning eyes. What's this about a friend in Clarksville? Really, it's nothing serious, I assured her. She said I happened to telephone Miss May the other day and she mentioned that Ruth wanted me to look you up and give you her regards. Joyce was really wide-eyed with this belief now. Obviously, she couldn't picture me as even remotely involved with the strange world in which she and Miss May and Ruth operated. How come you know Miss May and Ruth, she demanded. Miss May's a friend of mine, and I met Ruth during a visit to the house on College Street last summer, I said, adding just enough recollections to convince Joy I knew what she was talking about. At last, Joy relaxed. She sighed with relief and lit a cigarette. Honey, she said through a cloud of smoke, you sure had me fooled. I'd never take you for a hooker. Again, I'd been forced to do on several occasions. 
Since making the acquaintance of Miss May, I found myself explaining self-consciously that unfortunately I had neither the beauty nor the form for a career as a sex pot, but I quickly added I was starting out as a madame. In fact, I was just about ready to open a house in Bowling Green. Joyce looked at me long and hard. I guess you know something about my background. I admitted that I did. Miss May told me you got a rough deal in Louisville. I suppose you want me to come work for you? It was ironic. During our conversation, I'd been trying to desperately figure out how to diplomatically ask Joyce if she wanted to work in my house. And now she was the one who popped the vital question. Speechless at this unexpected turn of events, I could only nod in agreement. Well, Joyce said thoughtfully, it would sure beat this damn job. Suppose I take a look at your place and then give you an answer. I agreed, gave Joyce my address, and after getting her to promise to visit me after work that evening, I departed. A few hours later, she showed up at my place on Small House Road. I scarcely recognized her as she took off her coat and hat. Her shoulder-length black hair was carefully groomed, her makeup was in the best of taste, and a smartly styled blue silk gown really accentuated the positive. Joyce, the somewhat bedraggled scullery maid, had blossomed magically into an enchanting lovely butterfly. Even her stammering seemed to add a heart-wrenching quality to her charm. After a studious tour of the house, during which Joyce inspected every nook and cranny with the practice air of a woman who knows what she's doing, we settled down in the parlor for a long business-like talk. I told Joyce of my plans to run a house of assignation, at least not until I could recruit three or four more top-quality girls, and we discussed and agreed upon a schedule of fees and on my cut of the proceeds. In turn, Joyce told me of her background. She, too, had come from a respectable middle-class family in a town in eastern Kentucky. Her life had been uneventful until, after graduating from high school and going to work in an office, she fell in love with her boss. They had an affair, and Joyce became pregnant. Her outraged parents threw her out, and she went to work for another, more understanding family in town until she had the baby. When the baby died shortly after birth, she left town in disgrace and settled in Louisville. There, she worked in an office during the day and made a good living as a call girl at night until the law caught up with her and she came to work in the Bowling Green restaurant. It was nearly midnight when Joyce finished her recollections, a story which, in the years ahead, I would hear in one form or another hundreds of times, but hearing it for the first time, I was deeply touched. I was also elated, for Joyce had agreed to come work for me after giving the restaurants a week notice, a courtesy which I insisted upon because I didn't want to unnecessarily attract the ire of any of the town's businessmen. At last, I gloated after Joyce left. I had the beginning of my stable of girls. In one more week, I'd be ready for business.